following sermon was delivered on November 1st, 2020 at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America, located in Woodruff, South Carolina. Organizing pastor Dr. Joseph A. Piper Jr. preached this sermon entitled, Do You Remember? on 1 Timothy 1, 12-17. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit antiochpca.com or contact us at info at antiochpca.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. Remembering is something that uh, is enjoyable and is often very important in our lives. As I thought about remembering, I remember where I gave my wife her engagement ring. I have to ask her if she remembers where that happened. I remember when she turned the corner at the RTS chapel when we got married. I remember holding my firstborn. And all of our lives are like that. They're full of, of wonderful memories. Even you children now are building memories of that special trip, uh, uh, a special activity, a, a vacation that you've had with, with your family. But uh, remembering is more important than merely those kind of reflections. Remembering is an important part of who we are, what we ought to be doing with respect to others, to remember them, to remember their kindnesses, you know, not to do so is a height of ingratitude and sensitivity. Um, Self-centeredness. This is why we honor others. This is why we would uh, give people presents for their birthday. Or we would uh, write them a note to thank them for some kindness that they've done to us. And, and that's very important. But in our lives, spiritually, remembering also plays a very important role. We think of the Lord God. And he remembers his covenant. And that means he always treats us and acts toward us on the basis of those wonderful promises that he's made. But he also tells us to remember him. So boys and girls, he says that you are to remember him, your creator, in the days of your youth. He tells us, as we saw in the fourth commandment, that we are to remember the Sabbath day and to keep it holy. We are to uh, remember God's great covenant mercies to us, as the Psalms teach us, both the great stories of our family heritage in the Old Covenant Church and in church history, but in our own lives, to reflect uh, what's God doing in my life and those wonderful providences that come along the way. Every day of our lives, we are to remember. Well, that's what Paul is showing us here uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, the importance of remembering. Now you see, it's a slight digression brought on by the end of what he said in verse 11. Now you remember that the apostle is dealing with, uh, in the first part of this epistle, having Timothy deal with the false teachers in the church in Ephesus. And they're particularly fiddling with the law of God. Uh, making up stories out of genealogies, downplaying the, the moral, ethical aspects of the commandment. Paul, early on, exposed them in their futility and asserted the great purpose of all instruction is love for God from a, a pure heart, a, a pure conscience, and a sincere faith. And he then goes on, as we saw in the previous sermon two weeks ago, to deal with the use of the law. It's holy use, both in what we refer to as the first use of the law, by which God convinces us of our sin, 
He shows us the need of the Savior. And that last use, the third use, where he shows us that the law works with the gospel and how we are to respond to God. But for Paul, there was nothing more glorious than the gospel. And so he concluded thinking about the gospel in verse 11, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Now this being entrusted with the gospel uh, causes Paul then to uh, think about what that means. It causes him to remember. And in his remembering, he's teaching us that... Um, when we remember the grace of God, we encourage one another and we praise God. It is, remembering is good. Remembering of grace is good for mutual encouragement and for God's holy praise. So we're going to consider three things. I want to show you uh, Paul's testimony of grace, the statement of grace, and the response to grace. We begin then with Paul's statement to grace. You see, Paul is remembering in verses 13 and 14. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. Paul's Remembering, remembering that great event in his life when Christ grabbed him by the nap of the neck on the road to Damascus and converted him and called him into ministry all at the same time. Notice that he begins directing this praise to Christ Jesus, our Lord. We look at those names of Christ. I remind you that when you have the names of God or Christ in the Bible, stop and pay attention because they always have a part by the Holy Spirit's instruction of what's being said here. And what Paul wants us to realize as, he, as he's remembering Christ, thanking Christ, he wants us to realize the fullness of the Lord Jesus Christ. He begins with the title, Christ, that he is the, the Holy Spirit anointed prophet, priest, and king who came to reveal not just about God, but he, remember he told his disciple, if you've seen me, you've seen God. He's the revealer of the Godhead. He's the priest, as we were reminded from our uh, assurance of pardon in the prayer, that he is the one who reconciles us to God, or God becomes at peace with us. And then he's the king. And in him is all authority to accomplish and apply all of his holy purposes. And so he's the Christ. He's Jesus, which is his personal name. It reminds us that he is God incarnate. It means Jehovah saves. Uh, with that name, he told Joseph that it's Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus reminds us, uh, the name Jesus reminds us then of this very unique person who was, as we confess uh, after the sermon in the Nicene Creed, very God and very man. But one person, a great mystery of the incarnation. Now, he thanks Christ Jesus, our Lord. Notice that personal pronoun. Paul is constantly reminding us of the intimate relationship that needs to exist between us and God. But particularly, I want you to notice, we saw this back when he discussed his call uh, in verse 1. 
Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior and Christ Jesus. You see how he's joined Christ Jesus with God the Father. He does it at the end of verse 2. A grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Now he is thanking Christ Jesus our Lord. He's simply offering, by this act of worship, he's teaching that our Savior is the second person of the Godhead. So he's emphasizing that straight through here and now, but as well he is the head of the church. It's his role as the, as the, as the Savior, the mediator, the Christ. It's his role to govern his church and to appoint those who will rule in his church and who will teach and preach in his church. So the thanksgiving is addressed to Christ. Now Paul has two things in mind. In the first place, he, he has in mind his own a call into ministry. He says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. In other words, service uh, is translated service in the New American Standard is simply putting me into ministry. And here Paul is reminding us that he's not just been called to be an apostle. He was called to be a minister of the gospel. Later on in this same letter, he will show us that that role of preaching is the role that's going to replace the role of, of apostle. But he didn't put himself there, you see. He was put there by God. And you'll notice the language that uh, I was found faithful by Christ Jesus, or he considered me faithful. Paul is not saying here that because Christ foresaw that he'd be faithful, he says, I think I'll save this man, make him an apostle. No. He was considered faithful because Christ, by mercy and grace, put him into office and made him faithful. And you see that by the word that proceeds then when he says, He strengthened me because he considered me faithful. He's reflecting here on his early ministry where he uses a similar language, or Luke does in Acts chapter 9, as Paul is uh, anointed in Damascus, and he begins to, to uh, preach. And it says in verse 22 of Acts 9, But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. So it was Christ, he says, in his mercy that uh, called him into ministry. He never forgets that. Uh, uh, earlier in Second uh, Corinthians chapter 4, he addresses the, the church uh, about the need to persevere in verse 1. Therefore, since we have this ministry, we have received mercy. We do not lose heart. We do not lose heart because we have received mercy. This strength that Paul here promises to, uh, uh, God promises to Paul in his ministry. Notice as well, when he uses this word service and ministry, he's reminding us that the ministry is a stewardship. It's a trust. It's not something we deserve. A number of you young men here tonight are preparing for the ministry. Some of you are, are ministers and elders in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we should never forget, in your, all of your preparation, never forget, this is Christ who will put you into office. And it is, a, it is a stewardship. And you're going to answer to him for that stewardship. But he is the one that's going to make you faithful. He's the one that will strengthen you for that task. And the same is true for us. 
who now rule and teach in the church, that this is not for us. It's not for our glory, our praise, our honor, anything else. It's for the glory of the triune God and for the good of God's people and for the conversion of sinners. So Paul is very thankful that God put him into ministry. You know, I've, I've been ordained 50 years, close to it, next year. And uh, I'm thankful. I'm thankful that God put me into the gospel ministry. Indeed, there are heartaches and there are difficulties, but there's nothing quite like it to be able to be a, a herald, an ambassador of the Lord Jesus Christ. But he was also expressing thanks here for his first calling. So he's, he dealt with this, his second calling first. It took place simultaneously, but we must be converted before we can be called to the ministry. Um, but he went to the ministry because he was reflecting on being entrusted with the gospel. But as he's remembering, of course, he's remembering the mighty grace of God. And so he, he says, that I'm put into ministry, verse 13, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. Now, you've read the story of Paul probably in Acts. He blasphemed the Lord Jesus Christ. He despised him. He ridiculed him. He spoke against him. But that wasn't enough. He became a, a rabid persecutor of the church. In Jerusalem, home to home, synagogue to synagogue, going then to foreign cities where there were strong uh, Jewish settlements, and on his way to Damascus when God grabbed hold of him. An awful persecutor of the church. And then this word violent aggressor, we get our English word hubris from this. He was arrogant and contemptuous in his dealing with Christians. He said, how in the world? I am Paul, he would say, and he would think. By the externals of the law, I am blameless. I am a Pharisee. I am an approved teacher. And you folks are so stupid to think that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah. That's, that's how he thought. That's what he was. Now you can see why he's remembering what he was, what he was. But then he says, yet I was shown mercy. Now we need to distinguish between mercy and grace. They're close and mercy would flow from God's gracious and compassionate nature. But mercy has to do with God's covenant loving kindness, the love he puts on his people and the compassion by which he deals with us. Now, in Paul's case, this mercy was that even if God saved him, he, he didn't have to make him a leader in the church. Uh, he could have let him suffer awful consequences uh, because of this behavior of his. The mercy was to, wasn't, as we see, not just to pardon his sins, it was to, to deliver him from much of the vileness of that which he had done, from its consequences and let him be a servant of Christ in the church. He says he was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. Now, what does he mean by this, acting ignorantly in unbelief? He's not excusing himself, as we'll see in the next section. He would call himself the chief of sinners. No, but he's trying to distinguish between himself and the, those who have sinned in a high-handed sin, in a high-handed way against God, and particularly against Christ. And this gets a bit to the blaspheme of the Holy Spirit and the blasphemy of Christ. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is 
not pardonable. So we read in Numbers uh, chapter 15, those who have sinned ignorantly, there's pardon. But in verse 30, the person who does anything defiantly, whether he's a native or an alien, that one is blaspheming the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from among his people because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment. That person should be completely cut off. His guilt will be on him. You see the difference? This is one who is defiantly against light and knowledge blasphemed. That's what Christ warns the Pharisees about when they say he's casting out demons by the ruler of the demons. It's what is described then in Hebrews chapter 6, the person who's had light understood so much of the beauty of the gospel and now holds Christ up for empty shame. So Paul is saying he, he was responsible for his unbelief. He'd be the first to tell you. He says it many times. But what he's saying is, it was in my unbelief, I really thought I was serving God. He says that at one time. I thought I was, I was serving God in persecuting the church. And so he mourned persecuting the church. But he said, this is the difference. If you harden your heart to the degree that you know all the truth of the gospel, and you then harden your heart and say, no, 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 and then begin to blaspheme against Christ, you are eternally damned. And that's a warning that comes out of this. You know, we don't get to that point overnight, do we? It takes a period of time. It takes time and again of, of hearing the gospel and, and hearing calls to come and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And to say no. Very important you understand. You never attend the preaching of the word of God. And leave neutral. I want that fact to sink in. You never attend the preaching of the word of God. And leave neutral. God's promise. His word does not return void. But he also says it is an aroma of life to some. An aroma of death for others. You can't walk out of here tonight as if it's just a science lecture or math class, you know. You have to deal with God, and you will never leave neutral. You will either be a bit more angry and hardened in your sin, or perhaps there will be some growing interest, perhaps a conviction of sin. And of course, for those of us who are Christians, and we should be responding to the Word as the Spirit directs us. So if any of you here tonight are hardening your heart, your conscience bears witness that you are lost and you're under God's wrath and condemnation. And you push back. You say, well, I don't believe that, or that's folly, or you try to cover over it. You walk out. You've added one more nail to your coffin. So I plead with you, don't be like those Pharisees that despised Christ and sinned deliberately. No, because what Paul is saying is, because he acted uh, ignorantly in unbelief, he was one who found mercy. And he speaks now of what God did. In verse 14, the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ. Now he gets to the bottom. Here he comes to the foundation, doesn't he? And that great fountain of God's grace, that work of God in Christ Jesus by which he delivers us from the guilt and bondage of sin. 
You see the word there in my Bible, more than abundance. Paul loved to uh, add prefixes to words, and this is one of his favorite. And if you have a hyper child, you'll understand what I mean by this. This word is hyper, and literally it is that God's grace is hyperabundant. It is overflowing. And this is Paul extolling now the grace of God. He's already talked about the glorious gospel. Now he talks about the grace of God by which God acts to us, that all the gospel flows out of that grace of God. Oh, what a glorious grace it is. And notice that it is with faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. A lot of our friends believe that uh, it's up to each individual whether or not they're going to receive Christ and they can, uh, they're the masters of their own faith. And so I'd like to ask them, did Paul have that choice? Was Paul said, now Paul, if you'll come to me, I'll, I'll, I'll let you if I want you to. No, Paul was converted. And that's what he's saying here. Look, look at the language. It's this abundant, hyperabundant grace with the faith and love which are found in, the word found not even there, faith and love in Christ Jesus. What Paul is saying is that Christ saved him, and Christ is the one that imparted to him faith in order to take hold of Christ. That's what we read in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It, and the grammar there points to faith, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Paul's saying that God by grace saved me, and everything from A to Z was of God's doing. That yes, this grace didn't just make Christ available. It didn't just convict Paul of sin. No, the grace of Christ, as he comes to Christ, it's Christ who gives him the faith in order to believe. And no one can believe unless the Spirit of Christ comes and gives him faith. And then with faith, love. Now, I'm sure he's thinking here about what he wrote in verse 5, that the end of all true teaching, the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere faith. You see, that love is also a product of God's grace in our lives. What a testimony. Paul's remembering. He's given this testimony of, in a sense, the double grace of God that saved him, and then in his mercy didn't cast him off somewhere for all the evil that he had done, but made him an apostle. <laughs> not just a minister, not a deacon, an apostle. He could never get over it. He could never, ever forget the wonderful, deep grace of God. And nor should we. And may God give us grace to remember. But what does remembering lead to then? Well, we see in the next place, having seen the testimony of grace, we look at the uh, statement of grace in verses 15 and 16. It's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason, I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as, as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. 
The introduction here, it's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. Paul has five of these in the pastoral epistles, three in 1 Timothy, one in 2 Timothy, and one in Titus. Now, what's interesting about these is that they're not scriptural quotations, but they are summaries of scriptural truth. And in fact, these five are part of the exegetical basis for why we have creeds and confessions. That's what Paul is doing here. He's quoting something that was common knowledge in the church. Now, inspiration he includes it in Scripture, but it was already common knowledge in the church. It was a confession of the church that Jesus has come in the flesh in order to save sinners. And so it's important to remember uh, what Paul is doing here with this trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptation and no, no doubts. And this is the very heart, the foundation of the gospel, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. So there's two things here, as I said. First, that the incarnation. You notice he came into the world. If somebody comes through the back door, what do we know about him? He's been someplace else before he came in here. He came in here out of out there. And so Christ, as he was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary, came into the world as the second person of the Godhead entered into her womb and took into a personal union with himself that human nature that the Holy Spirit created in the womb of the Virgin Mary. He came into the world, or as Galatians 4, God sent forth his Son. This is shown again the preexistent Son of God. Jesus the Christ is the preexistent Son of God. And then his purpose, to save sinners. In the Greek order, sinners is at the first of this. Sinners to save. Emphasizing there that this is the great mission of our Savior, and thus the great mission of His church. Sinners to save. And what a glorious truth it is, for there would be no other hope for you and me if God had not so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Whoever believes in Him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, Paul makes the statement, but Paul never stays in the abstract too long, does he? So, as soon as he says that this is a trustworthy statement that Christ came to the world to save sinners, he comes back to himself, among whom I am foremost, the chief of sinners. Now, Paul, you're, by the time you wrote this, you were near death. You were a very godly man. You've been an apostle of the church. You have been greatly sanctified. You wrote lots of books of Scripture. Why in the world would you say this? For all those reasons. The more one grows in grace, the more one is aware of how sinful he still is. I was thinking this morning as I read uh, the Westminster Catechism on what happens to believers at death. And the very first thing is they immediately are made holy. <laughs> immediately. The souls of believers immediately made holy. And that's something for which we should be longing. And the more we grow in grace, the more of our sin we see, the more we long for it. First, under that end that he saved us, he might make us holy. So uh, Paul is pointing to himself here. He's not making this up. He really thought of himself in this way. He thought about what he was. But he says, for this reason, I found this mercy 
that God set me aside, made me then a light to the nations in particular, so that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience. Paul is the example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. The word perfect is all, all patience. So what Paul is saying here is that I pressed on against him. I kicked against the pricks. He was under conviction of sin for some, some period of time. And he was but full of patience. In Exodus 34, Moses wants to see the glory of God. He says, I'll show you my glory. It's my goodness. And he quotes some attributes, compassionate, gracious, and slow to anger. Slow to anger. This holy God, sovereign, ruling over all things, adored perfectly by angels and the souls of just men made perfect, bears long with sinners as he pleads with people through his preachers and through their friends to come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says, I'm but an example of grace. I am an example of this confessional statement. It's my personal statement. And I think that's very important. You see, Paul was, I've already used this word a few times, he was an experiential, an experimental theologian. Truth was filtered through his life. His life reflected the truth of God's word. And so even as he's got this great confessions coming out personally, and that must be the way you and I hold to our glorious Reformed doctrines. Not abstractly, but personally. That it's I, it is you that's being described in all these various confessions and catechisms. And we should love the truth, revelation of God. Love like Paul, the grace of the gospel. So he says he is an example. The word example is the word prototype. It's like a blueprint of a building project. Um, an artist uh, might do a pencil sketch, and you've maybe been in the museum, you've seen the pencil sketch and then the, the final painting. That pencil sketch, that blueprint, that prototypical thing that an engineer built, uh, that's the word here. But Paul is saying, God has set me forth as a pattern to sinners about his patience and his willingness to save sinners. I don't know all of you that well, but I know that oftentimes uh, there'll be those in the church that think they've sinned beyond God's grace. God wouldn't have someone like me. Uh, I'm not like these other people in this church. If you only knew the other people in this church, you wouldn't think that way. But anyway, um, I've sinned too long. I've sinned too hard. I've, you know, I had an abortion. I've had a, a, an awful sexual lifestyle, or I've stolen, or I'm triple divorced, whatever it is. But you see, that's Satan whispering a lie in your ear. What's Paul saying? He says, I, the arrogant, blaspheming persecutor of the church, the chief of sinners, am an example that God saves sinners. There might be others of you that you're a Christian, but you fell into some grievous sin in the past, and you sit here to this day beating yourself up, letting Satan beat you up, I've sinned too much ever again to, to know God's favor. But Paul says, no. God loves to save sinners. And God's patient with sinners. And even as Paul says that he is an example, we can think of many others in the Bible. We think of Adam and Eve. 
They murdered the entire human race. We think of um, Manassas, who led the church into such idolatry that those consequences were not alleviated. It was because of his sin they went into captivity, but God converted him. And if you're sitting here tonight outside of Christ, or if you're sitting here tonight and you're, you're worrying that, well, I, I'm a Christian, but, you know, listen. There's nothing more wonderful than to be able to come and bow at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ and ask forgiveness. To know that our Savior always will grant it to those who seek him. Now, this leads Paul and us to the third thing. We've seen the testimony and the statement of grace and now we've got this response to grace in verse 17. Now to the king, eternal, or the king of the ages, literally. Immortal, invisible, only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. What we have here technically is what is called a doxology. You'll find them in the Old Testament. you find many of them in the New Testament. A doxology has certain uh, literary characteristics that you can see here. In the first person, in the first place, it addresses God in the third person. So it is to Him or to God. Next, it will describe God, particularly in terms of attributes. And it will list, in this case, His sovereignty along with uh, three other attributes or his, and His eternity. Uh, and then it will ascribe to Him some honor, glory, praise, and then always, forever, with an amen. Well, those are the elements. You see them all here. Now, again, what Paul does, he gives us something to help us to guide and shape us as we respond to God's grace. And that is a doxology. It's full of the glory of the triune God. So he, he's just spoken of Christ Jesus. And so he says, now to the king of ages. He could be addressing the, uh, here the Trinity. He could be addressing simply Christ the King, but it's ascribed unto uh, the Lord God, the King, who is the King of the ages. So translated in our Bibles, eternal. And that is one of the ways to understand King of the ages. But here it reminds us that His rule is eternal. He's sovereign. Now that's what Paul's whole testimony reflects. He had nothing to do with his conversion. God is sovereign. And as such, he rules over the ages past, that's why it says ages, the present age and all that is to come, from eternity to eternity. It is an eternal reign that our God has. Now out of that, Paul mentions these three attributes of God. First place, he says that he is immortal. And that means that uh, he uh, would never perish uh, he does not change in his character, thus he does not change in his will. I think particularly here again that Paul is reminding us of the changeless character of God who is immortal. He's not subject. He is only immortal of himself. Our souls are immortal because God made them so. Angels are immortal because God made them so. But we, are, but God is by nature immortal, un changing. And then invisible. Now perhaps you children have learned in the children's catechism that means that God does not have a body like man and he cannot be seen. But again, I think Paul mentions this attribute because he's been talking about conversion. 
which is an invisible act of God. We can see the results of what the Holy Spirit's been doing in the heart. This invisible God who had been working in Paul for a good while, kicking against the pricks, but pursuing him like uh, Thompson's Hound of Heaven, pursuing him, but in a way that we're often unaware. And then I prefer the manuscript that he is the only wise God. Because again, Paul's talking now about God's plan of redemption. He's talking about the incarnation. He's talking about a plan that there's no other way that God could be just and the justifier of sinners, you see. It's only in this way when his own perfect son, who is both divine and human, so that he is both a, um, a sufficient substitute that can do a divine work, but a suitable substitute that can be the, the mediator of men, women, boys, and girls. And then there at Calvary, it all, under one big magnifying glass, every one of God's moral attributes. Only there. Only there. Wrath, justice, righteousness, anger, mercy. All poured out and accomplished in him. Oh, no wonder Paul says that he is the only wise God. What belongs then to this immortal, invisible, only wise king of the ages? Well, Paul here ascribes two things. Other doxologists will ascribe more, but honor and glory. All honor belongs to him. All respect and reverence, faith, belong to him. And glory, we are to ascribe unto him all glory. Even as we meditated in Psalm 115. And notice, and all the doxologies end with an amen. And this is those who are confessing here, stating this, putting their stamp upon it. Let it be so. Let it be so. That's why we use the corporate amen in our worship. Now, this doxology should be used uh, in our worship. Uh, we should sing doxologies. We should pray doxologies. Plummer, in his commentary on the Ten Commandments, says the Third Commandment, we are indicted as taking God's name in vain when we don't offer to him doxologies. And so we're going to use them in our prayers. We will sing them. Um, just remind you for further study that Larger Catechism uh, 196, the very last question, what does the conclusion of the Lord's Prayer teach us? The conclusion of the Lord's Prayer, which is, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, amen, teaches us to enforce our petitions with arguments which are to be taken not from any worthiness in ourselves or in any other creature, but from God, and with our prayers to join praises, ascribing to God alone eternal sovereignty, omnipotency, and glorious excellency, in regard whereof He is able and willing to help us, so we by faith are emboldened to plead with Him that He would, and quietly, to rely upon Him, and that He will fulfill our request and to testify this our desire and assurance with saying, Amen. And so you should learn to use doxologies in your private prayers, as well as we will use them in various ways here in the church. But what it shows us is that once you understand the grace of God, you are gripped with gratitude. Now, in the middle part there, when Paul gives us the statement of grace, He's encouraging the church. He's encouraging the unbelievers. But here he is showing us how the reflection on the works of God will always lead to praise. And it must. It's a way that we should prepare then for worship. As Paul thinks on these things, 
thinks on the greatness of God, and he praises God, so should we. And so when we remember grace, we encourage one another, and we praise God. And I hope that you are reflecting on God's grace in your life. I hope that the response to God's grace in your life is the same as Paul's. That you will be filled with joy and wonder and awe that God would save a sinner like you or like me, purely out of his grace. Reflect on what our lot would be if God had not chosen to save us. We would be eternally doomed. That we might be driven to praise and glory and wonder at the great God and, and his great gospel. So remember, remember the objectively the great works of God in salvation. But remember subjectively his, his work in your life. Think long about it. Your family life, all the directions where God has ordered your steps. You didn't have to be born uh, in a place where you came under the call of the gospel. You didn't have to be born in, in at least a, a, some relative comfort uh, physically. You didn't have to be born, as many of you were, into a Christian family. That's all God's doing. Remember it. Remember those great providences, the big events in lives which I, with which I began, but also the everyday things. Part of our response to God's providence is that we should be thinking and praying daily about the minor deliverances and the interpositions and all the different things that uh, our God is doing in our lives. Remember, 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 and then praise, praise, praise. And then as you remember, you must tell others. You tell your children. That's why we focused on, on Psalm 78 and, and Psalm 145. Um, so many people are coming into our presbytery with this crazy thing about recreation clause and all that. And yes, we need to do something with our children to get rid of energy, but what better thing is there to do than take them for a walk and tell them the stories of your life? Because that's what they want. You know, where was I when you and mommy got married? Well, that can open up a great theological discussion. Um, we do catechism, but you must tell them. You must talk to them when they're little, and then they'll talk to you when they're older. But if you're not talking to them about these things when they're young, you don't expect them to talk to you about them. And so tell your children and tell your friends. One of the things we want to focus in prayer meeting is the items of thanksgiving, remembering that we prayed for these things and that God has heard us and answered our prayer. And of course, tonight, we have a special remembering. Those are words that Apostle uses. We are to remember our Savior. Remember the very things that this text has been dealing with as we, as we come now to, to the Lord's table. To remember that uh, uh, Jesus Christ came into the world, God incarnate. To remember that he came to save sinners. Those are the two most important facts that are set forth right here. The bread and blood that he has a true human body and nature. And the broken bread and the poured wine that he gave his life to save sinners. We're remembering that tonight as we come, and then remembering what it means to us uh, that he has done for us. Let us pray. We bless your name, holy God, for your word. We thank you that you have taught us 
uh, these most glorious and wonderful truths, and may they be put deeply into our hearts and consciences by the Spirit. May we respond in remembering and praising and talking and sharing. And if there are those here tonight, Lord, that either are hardening themselves or think they've outsinned grace, may your Spirit work in a wonderful way in their hearts. We pray this for Christ's sake. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.